Good morning, everyone. Uh, and welcome here if you're new or a guest or visitor. Just so grateful to have you here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm our, our lead pastor here. And, uh, you know, on January 12th, a couple weeks ago, uh, we got to witness six baptisms over our three services. That was, you know, representing six people who had come to know and experience the life-giving love of God for them. And, you know, one of those who declared his commitment to Jesus that day, his name is Sean White, and uh, he was here in the first service, and I just chatted with him about whether I could share this, and he said to go ahead. But, you know, his first point of connection with our community was actually at the block party that we did down the street at McGowan Park this summer. Uh, he had wandered into the park, and uh, a couple weeks later, when I met him, was he showed up on a Sunday morning, and um, God was working in his life, was drawing him. He was He was searching. And, uh, and so this Friday night playing hockey, we've got a, a summit sort of hockey once a week thing that we do. And I saw Sean on the ice. I said, Sean, hey, I just, I've got to ask you, like, to what extent, you know, in your experience, because over the next few months, he came to our Alpha program. He came to put his faith in Jesus and was baptized just a couple weeks ago. Just a beautiful story. But I said, to what extent was it sort of how the community was with each other what like what role did that play in you coming to a place of trusting in Jesus he said it was huge Uh, he said hey we felt well I felt welcomed I felt like I belonged here I saw people loving each other and the culture of this place just you know um, in I'm shortening what he said here but but the culture in this place made him hungry to know more of Jesus the one that we were centering our attention as a community around you know, in our study guide, we've been looking, um, there's this one quote that I, uh, that I included in that says, we cannot know God, change deeply, or win the world apart from community. And I happen to believe that's true. Uh, in the first um, four sessions, really we've been looking at those first two parts, knowing God, changing deeply. But now today in our final wrap-up of our Life Shared series, we're going to look at that last part, apart from community, we cannot win the world. And I think that's true. Our life shared itself has a significant part to play in our witness to the rest of the world. Uh, this morning, so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to dive deep just really into what Jesus says about community and mission and he, how he just mashes those two things together. Because we see at the end of John's gospel, uh, Jesus has gone to the cross, he's been resurrected, and he's standing in front of his, his frightened disciples. And the big idea, the one command he gives them is this, he says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Sent. The Father sends the Son, and the Son now sends us. In, in the first message, we saw that God's whole purpose in creating was Community. He creates out of love that we would be in communion with God and with each other. But by about page two or three in your Bibles, you'll find out that that community, that harmony that we were created for has come unraveled through human sin, our rebelliousness against God, our wanting to believe that we could live our lives apart from God's loving leadership. It's, it's kind of saying, God, we don't need you. And the result of that has been this unraveling. But by page four and the rest of the biblical storyline is telling us of God's reestablishment of community. And now Jesus says that we are being drawn into the heart 
of that new creation project. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, we just want to say that we're so thankful for your love. Uh, We're so thankful that you call us to belong to you and to each other in this community. And we're so thankful that you've shown us what real life is all about, that that you led the apostles to record the things that Jesus said and did for our learning. And now we open ourselves up and we just say, Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Help us to hear these texts uh, and to have the impact on our hearts that they were meant to. So we open ourselves to hearing everything you want us to hear today through this in Christ's name. Now, at the center of each of the gospel narratives, the gospels, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, um, the, the part that begins to speak about Jesus, there, there's, there's four gospels. These are biographies of Jesus' life, but a, a central component of, of those gospels is this moment where the identity of Jesus is be, being revealed. It's, it's, people are finally piecing together who Jesus is. And I want us to pick up in Matthew 16, in one of these conversations that Jesus is having with his disciples. Um, This is verse 15 and 18. But what about you? Jesus asked his disciples, that means his followers. He says, you know, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, meaning God's promised rescuer and ruler, the one we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but it was revealed by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and his name means rock. Cephas means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, like the power of evil and death itself, will not overcome it. When Peter says, you are Messiah, when he finally gets it, who Jesus is, notice the next thing Jesus begins to talk about is his plan for community. Community as as God intended. That has always been on God's heart. Paul says this in Ephesians 1, 4. He says, for he, speaking of God the Father, chose us, the community of God, in him, in Christ Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This blows my mind. You see what Paul is saying? Before God created anything at all, it was us. It was you and I together as his people, gathered around the greatness of God to bring him glory and honor with our whole lives. You are God's dream. What he wanted was us together living for his glory. Before anything else at all, he said, you are my delight. I have, the creation itself is there, at least at one level, in preparation for us. And when he promises that nothing will ever be able to snuff out God's project, he means it. The power of evil and death itself has no chance against God building his church. It's been said that the safest place in the world is at the center of God's will. Yes? The question is, what is the center of God's will? And I believe as what Jesus is talking about here, what Paul has written about, the center of God's will is us. It is life shared. It is the people of God with our whole lives bringing glory to God. 
So the question comes to us is this, do you really want to try to live outside of that? Outside of God's project to build a people for himself that he's had in mind for all of eternity? See, the church, all of God's people throughout time and around the world, expressed in local congregations, communities of people like us who can love each other in real practical ways, we are God's plan A for the world and there is no plan B. And incredibly, the church is growing most rapidly in places where to join up with Jesus and be associated with his community, the church, is to live with the threat of violence or to lose your livelihood or to be separated from your family. That's where it's growing the most. Yet despite the cost, many of our sisters and brothers in Christ around the globe believe that faithfulness to Jesus and his community is still worth it. Uh, Nick Ripkin was a missionary in Mogadishu, Somalia, And he tells the story of a church leader he knew in Iran named Bishop Hake. Hake had been sharing Jesus in a place where persecution had just been a part of everyday life for as long as the generations go back for Christian people. Now, Hake had been missing for several days and people were beginning to fear the worst. And there was a man that he was co-pastoring with. And at one of their Sunday services, he'd been preaching. Um, There were 34. Five to 40 Nick reports, people lined up to be baptized that day. And as this man, as this pastor is preparing these people for their baptism, his, his wife comes up and hands him the phone. And he takes this call from the front. And it's a Muslim friend of his who says, uh, your, your friend Hake has been murdered. He's been killed. Uh, and I know where they've hidden his body. It's in a shallow grave in a field. And I'm just waiting to show you where it is. So the pastor hangs up the phone and with tears streaming down his face, he looks at these 35 to 40 people who are lined up to be baptized and says, your pastor is dead. He he lost his life because of his commitment to Jesus and his mission. Do you really want to do this? Do you really want to step forward and be associated with Jesus and this good news and this community? Because this is what we're facing. All of them were baptized. And all of them committed themselves, not only to being a part of the church, but being a part of the mission of God in the world. Today, Iran is the place where the church is growing faster than anywhere else in the world. It's because of people like this, sisters and brothers in Christ, who said, community's worth it. The glory of Jesus is worth it. Uh, In 1979, there were estimated to be 500 Muslim background believers in Iran. Today, it's estimated upwards to a million people who are followers of Jesus there in these short few decades. Amidst amidst fierce persecution, God continues to use faithful men and women to share Jesus with others. And lives are being transformed for eternity because of it. And here's why. It's the second thing we need to see from what we just read. Jesus said, I will build my church. Those pronouns really matter. Not, I will build your church, no. And certainly not, you will build your church. Uh, The church that Jesus speaks of, we belong to him. We are his. What a joy, what a relief. This community was his idea. We are God's dream. But we might be tempted to think that realizing this dream is at the end of the day up to us. Again, Jesus does not say, you will build my church. He doesn't give us a blueprint and say, well, you better get on with it, guys. Come on, here's your thing. You got to do it. Now, we do have a role to play. Significant role. 
We really do. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, I will build my church, and he will. And the amazing part of that is he invites us now to be a part of that. See, community, belonging to Jesus and his people and mission, they're they're inseparable. You can't speak of them as two different things. And that might sound daunting to us because there is opposition. But Jesus says those forces of evil will not overcome what I'm building. And, And you and I can rest assured in that. That's Jesus' promise. So to sum up so far, the church, we are God's dream. This is his plan from eternity past. Before anything else was made, God's design was us together. It's life shared. And nothing can stand against what he's doing. Man, that gives me a sense of relief. Why be anxious about what we know the outcome to already be? Yes, we play our part. And we've looked at this over this series. We are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to what's been written down about Jesus and how his life is the climax of the larger storyline of the Bible. We, we pay attention to that. That's why we gather around the word every single Sunday together. We share our lives, our resources, our time, our love, and we pray, we connect to God. We let Jesus lead the way in how we treat each other. That's a big focus of what we've looked at in our studies so far. See, through our connections, our friendships in Christ, we are working with the Spirit to encourage each other to become all that God in Christ has created us to be. It's Jesus' church and his work, but the pleasure is that he's invited us to be a part of it, a part of the reestablishment of community. And so the mission isn't just doing good stuff in the world. It'll include that, but it centers on Jesus' own life and his teaching. In Matthew's gospel, following his death and resurrection, which, of course, guarantee that if we put our trust in him, we too will experience, though we experience death, we will also experience life again. Jesus, standing before them resurrected, says this, all authority in heaven and earth belong to me. So, quick question, what other authority is there that's above him? According to Jesus, none. All authority in heaven and on earth. There is no other authority to tell you how to live, the good news of God's love for you. There is no other place you can go for life if that's that's true. If that's true, there's no other life anywhere else. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does Jesus do with his authority? He sends. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that baptizing in the threefold name of God is, is saying, I am connected to God and what he's done for me. But more than that, it's also saying, and I am connected to this reestablishment of community, to the community itself and to the mission that God is calling me in. And then Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And if that was the end of what Jesus said to his first hearers, their hearts would have sank to the bottom of the ocean in despair. How? How could we possibly make that happen? Jesus, how could you leave us such an enormous task? And that's how I feel sometimes when I forget, and I do at times. But that's not where Jesus ends. His next word is a promise that changes everything. The next word brings us from despair to delight. It's idu in the Greek. It's an, uh, it's, a, it's an interjection. It's like someone yelling, look, behold, 
Uh, Older translations use the word low. Maybe we should bring that one back. This interjection is meant to get your attention for eyes that have just dropped, for hearts that have just sunk with the overwhelming task. It says, but don't, don't look at that. Look at this. Look at me. Look, behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will build my church, Jesus says. Don't think for a second you'll be alone in that. I will be doing it through you. My authority. That's where you operate from. And I know some of you might feel about like, what right would we have to speak into our culture about following Jesus? How, how could we possibly say that? And Jesus' answer is, it's my authority you go in, not your own. And this news is both true and necessary for everyone. It's my presence that will lead you and strengthen you. So go. For listen, at the end of John's gospel, I I cited a part of this at the beginning, but I want you to hear the rest of it because Jesus' disciples are scared. They think they've just lost their leader forever. And now they're hiding out because they think, well, we're going to be next. There's going to be crosses set up for us too. And they're hiding in a room, and here's what we leave, read. This is Jesus' first interaction with his followers. He says, on the, on the evening, this is John 20, 19 to 22, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We need to note, first, and similar to Matthew's commissioning, Jesus says that they are his agents just as he is the agent of the Father. This reminds us that our business, whatever you think your business is, if you're a follower of Jesus, your business is this. It's to be about Jesus' business in the world. The commission, that reality that we too are agents of Jesus, that is a life-defining task, but it's also a life-giving task. Our vocation, our calling, it's to be about Jesus' work, And that happens in our homes, it happens in our neighborhoods, it happens in our workplaces, it happens when we're doing recreation stuff with others. It's supporting those who are doing Jesus' work around the world. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, like in the same sort of way. What does that mean? Let's look. First, Jesus has just shown them what? He's shown them scars. Jesus' own mission comes at a great cost. Our lives have been purchased through his work. Those scars mean our forgiveness and new life. And second, could it be that Jesus is preparing his followers when he says that they will be sent in the same way as he was? Will this mean the mission being costly for them as well? You see, for those first disciples and countless followers like Pastor Hake since then, being sent in the same way, means actually a similar fate as Jesus himself faced. Death for the sake of this mission. And that's a sobering reality. That's a reality that you and I will probably never have to worry about. But 
and this is for their comfort and joy and for ours, there are our brothers and sisters around the world who do face that. That is their decision. If they're going to be a part of the community of God, they are going to be at the threat of violence, separation from their family, loss of livelihood. That is normal Christianity for so many places in the world. That's why we pray weekly for our brothers and sisters in Christ who face that. But, and this is for their comfort and joy and ours, Jesus is standing there, what? what? Like, he's upright. <laughs> he's not in the grave. Which means everyone who follows Jesus, who puts their trust in him, will experience life after this life too. So even though it's costly for Pastor Hake, he is standing in the very presence of God right now. And third, when Jesus breathes on them, we think, okay, that's kind of weird. Uh, What's that about? But where else in the biblical story, where first in the biblical story do we see someone breathing on someone else? Anyone? Genesis 2. God himself breathes on the man and breathes life into him. What is going on here? Well, the first thing we have to see is that Jesus himself is none other than the same one who breathed that life into Adam in the first place. He is God himself. So we need to see Jesus' identity in that. His breathing on them signals that Jesus is one and the same as the creator God, but he's also, it signals that he is rehashing the creation story. This is creation 2.0. This is the signal that what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection is bringing about the new creation, is making us a new humanity in Christ. And at this point, it's important to notice how the work of Jesus in making us his new humanity, it really challenges the individualism that is just the water we swim in in our culture and the self-centered bent of our hearts. Um, Ross Hastings is a professor of theology at Regent College just down the road in Vancouver, and he says it well. He says, furthermore, individualism prevents the church community from being open to the world. He says, so long as you're functioning as though it's just a me and Jesus thing, we're going to function essentially completely ineffective because he says God's primary agent for mission, the church, not its individuals, is thus entrapped. The fundamental incurvatus in se orientation of the heart. And that's a Latin phrase that uh, St. Augustine used to describe what sin is. It's the human being turned in on him or herself, just self-focus. He says that curvatus in se of our hearts and actually that can infest our whole communities can by the power of the gospel of the God who is for us transform his community to be ex curvatus ex se oriented outward toward the world in love now to be sent as Jesus was sent by the father how is he sent in love outward ek is a preposition that means out from that's how we're to be sent as well. Jesus, the risen and reigning king, stands before his disciples, now raised from the dead, and he says that they are to be oriented outward toward the world in love, the world that the Father sent the Son in love to give his life for. How could we not be about that same thing? But back to the question of how, this is so key to grasp. In giving them his spirit, Jesus is committing himself, his very presence, to his disciples. Then, and us today, 
Like when Jesus promises, I will be with you always, when you heard that, did you look next to you? Did you say, okay, yeah, where? I don't see you here at all. How could you make that sort of promise? Here's how. The Spirit indwells them and us. Jesus is present with us through the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit unites us on this task of mission. For as Jesus has prayed for us in John 17, unity is integral to the mission. Our unity, our togetherness is integral to the mission. Here's what he says. I pray that all of them will be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus ties the quality of our relationships as a body of Christ to our witness in the world. He says these two things are just bound up in each other. So here I think is where it gets really interesting. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me. How? Well, you almost have to just go right back to the very beginning of John's gospel and then go through and say, what did it look like? How does the Father send the Son? You know, Philip Yancey, he tells this great little story in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. It tells the story of his saltwater aquarium. He, you know, he, he made this beautiful aquarium, kind of got the habitat all ready, filled it up with water, ma- maintains the pH and the alkalinity, makes sure to feed them the right kinds of foods and the right amounts. And every time he comes to the tank, they just flee in terror. They don't know that he's there to love them and to care for them. They just see him as this terrifying, holy, other than they. And then Yancey asks the question, it's a good one, like how could he ever communicate to these fish that he's their loving provider, that he cares about them? He said, well, I could become a fish and I could speak their language and show them my love for them. John's gospel begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who is this word? We find out a few verses later in 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, Jesus, God the Son, actually showed up. He came to show us the love of God in a bodily form. How does he communicate? He becomes one of us and moves among us. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. So how do we communicate? Maybe in a world, in a culture that we feel like we're at odds with some of the values, maybe quite often even, how do we do that? Well, we've got to be present too. Now, some of you are really visual people, right? You're like, draw me a picture and I'll get it. Others of us are really audible. Like we we love to kind of hear and we take things in that way. Some of you are really both. You know what, when it comes down to it, I think most of us learn best when we see something, we hear it explained, we're shown it, and then we get to try it for ourselves. right? I think that's why we love movies so much. Now, in in my um, undergrad years, I was doing a science degree, but they insisted that we take a certain amount of arts credits so that we didn't just kind of get all in kind of like one stream of thinking, I guess. I wanted us well-rounded students at the end of the day. And uh, so I took a film class, an English class, and it was amazing. Uh, We just like watched movies and then talked about why they spoke to us, the mise-en-scene, the kind of like how things are framed in the picture. We watched The Godfather and 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I learned a whole lot about how to read a film. 
and why they capture our imaginations. And I think at a simple level, this is because film stimulates and engages our eyes, our ears, and then the plot and narrative and characters, they capture our imagination through the story. The good news of Jesus, man, it has to be seen and experienced and heard all together as well. Audible and visible. An announcement, a picture. What's the picture? You are. We, together, how we treat each other, we are the picture of what God has done through his son, Jesus. That's why Jesus says it like this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. You're my followers if you love one another. How do you know if someone's a follower of Jesus? By the way they love their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's, that's the, the, the measure, Jesus says. By the love you have for one This is what scholar Lois Barrett means when she writes. And this is a bit fancy sounding language, but we'll talk about it. She says, the missional church both proclaims the gospel and embodies the gospel. It proclaims Jesus Christ to more and more people and makes the life of Jesus visible in itself. The proclamation is visible in, with, and through the quality of a common life that manifests in the unique culture contrasting good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a mouthful, um, <laughs> but here's what I think is going on here. Now, there's a, there's a quote that often gets falsely attributed to St. Saint, uh, Francis of Assisi, pardon me, um, and, it, and it goes like this, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. That's not quite what I'm saying here, and, and here's why. Um, the gospel is by definition news. It means good news. News has to be announced. It has to be heard because the gospel has content. There's things about the gospel, the person of Jesus, his work through his life, death, and resurrection, what that means for us. There's, co- there's content in the gospel that needs to be heard and understood and believed. But what I'm saying is this. This news also requires that others can see it embodied, manifest in a gospel-shaped community. That's what gives legitimacy to the words that we say, is when people can look at the community and say, aha, that's what it does to a people. Think of it like this. Someone's listening in. Uh, pardon me, they're, they're interested in getting to know more about this God thing. Like the Holy Spirit has already been working in their life. They're being drawn along to be curious And so maybe you've invited your friend, and maybe that's you today. I don't know. If you're here for the first time, someone invited you, thank you for joining us. And you're here because you're curious. And so what does this person see when they look in at this community now? Uh, Or maybe you invited them to a life group event to watch the Super Bowl together, something like that. As they come, what sort of culture are they stepping into? How do people within this culture treat one another? What's the tone of their speech? Their gestures toward each other, their greetings? What's the focus of their conversations? Is it the sort of culture that's humble and gracious? Is kindness like reigning as king? Is there generosity and care? Is that evident? Now, all of those features might not become apparent in one meeting, but over time, if a person were to continue to connect, is that the picture that would emerge? 
Like, how do these people talk about other people who aren't present? Is there a sense of honor and respect and dignity given in their language? If this gospel-shaped culture is what they see, the question is, what would that be saying about the God whom they profess to love and trust and worship? Or if this kind of culture of love, if it's not present, what does that say? It takes a life shared, a community to demonstrate, to paint the picture for the world to see the truth of Jesus' saving love that we profess, audible and visible. A story to hear and a visual of kingdom life to see. Some people say that, and I think this is true, that the the church is to be a sign and foretaste of God's coming kingdom. Now think about it. You're driving down the road, uh, and you maybe have hungry kids in the back seat, and you see a sign, and maybe there's a picture on the sign, and that picture is of a juicy cheeseburger. And it says, eight kilometers up the road. Now, your mouth begins to water for what's coming. And you're thinking, yeah, we need to stop. Uh, We need to pull over at this place. You become hungry for what is ahead. And now, I'm not trying to, like, equate the church with a cheeseburger. But um, let's let's not press this analogy too far. But what the church is to be is like a sign, a signpost pointing to the kingdom that, honestly, if not perfectly, reflects what the life to come, God's kingdom future reign is to look like. Or a foretaste. You know, you go to the farmer's market sometimes, and there's sellers, and, they, and if they're wise, you know what they're doing? They're chopping stuff up, and they're handing you a piece of that apple. And you take a bite, and you go, oh my goodness, this is hard on the pocketbook now. Because you want to buy it. You, you've tasted it. You, you, it's that flavor is in your mouth, and now you want some that. The church is to be a sign pointing to the kingdom. It's to be a foretaste of what the kingdom of God is like. No, we don't do this perfectly, for sure. That's why we need God's grace. We're in process, but we're committed to the Jesus way and to the work of the Spirit in us. We're open to that, to becoming that foretaste, that sign, that picture. The quality of our life together tells people of what is to come in the future. However imperfectly we reflect it, we are to be a tiny taste of what is to come for those who we come in contact with, visible and audible. We, as Jesus' beloved people, his dream, we're to demonstrate also in our sending what life looks like as God begins to put it together. And that's what we celebrate at the table this morning. I'm going to invite those who are going to help me to to pass it out and the, and the worship team to come as well. But this table, when Jesus arranges the elements when he first met with his disciples, before he goes to the cross, he tells them that this is going to be a picture for them to keep reminding them of what's at the center of their life together. He says, whenever you eat this, you're declaring the death of Jesus until he returns. You see what we're doing? As we gather around this table, Jesus is saying, this is going to make you a sign and a foretaste. Your life together is to be shared around me, around my teaching, around my grace. And so as we take this into ourselves, we're saying, God, we are open to actually becoming like you, Jesus. That we would become self-giving. That we would become 
outward focused because as the Father sent you, now you are sending us. That our lives would become more and more cross-shaped in this sense. And so the celebrating of this on a regular basis is to remind us that we are beloved, we are God's dream, but also that God has a love for the rest of the world that we get to participate in sharing. And by taking this in, we are being formed and shaped to be people like that. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, boy, you see to it that that there is nothing you're going to withhold that's good from us either. You gave us your very life so that we would know that there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so today we celebrate that. And we ask that through our taking of this together that we would be reminded of our unity that comes through what you've done. Holy Spirit, that you unite us around Jesus as the center of our community. And we celebrate that this means our forgiveness and that we're now a part of your community building project. So we give you thanks today. Amen.